Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome back to another edition of Causeway Kings here on the WMEX Sports Podcast Network and proudly partnering with some pretty cool people, I must say. Your buddy Benny here, of course, and uh, with us, a full crew borderline. We're missing Chiggs tonight. He is still out on the ice right now. Bless his little heart. And we do have Clance with us. Clance, how are you? What's going on, guys? Uh, I am beyond excited for this interview. Um, you know, I get to learn more about the history of frosted tips and baby blue jumpsuits. Um, I am just ecstatic. You know, four days post-op shoulder surgery, so if I look a little fidgy on camera, it's because I can't get comfortable. Excellent, excellent. Also joining us once again, Brian Johnston. BJ, good to see you, bud. Good to be back. Look forward to the night. Should be very good. One of those more enjoyable nights of the, uh, the week. Groovy, well put. Merrill Marshall also joins us. Absolutely stellar. I'm, I'm just happy to be here. And um, we got a great guest on who um, has seen it all and basically done it all in the NHL. And I mean, we have a million questions for him. So hopefully we get to some of them uh, tonight. So it'll be great. I love it. And also joining us from the Boston Herald, as well as the WMEX sports team, Brendan Connolly with us tonight. How are you, Brendan? Spent a long day at the lacrosse fields, but it's going to be talking hockey back in my element here I'm with you guys on the Causeway Kings podcast. And I'm glad that we have a former NHL player in house tonight. That's right. Well alluded to, buddy. Of course, now joining us, our special guest, former NHL player here with the Pittsburgh Penguins, the Boston Bruins. Ian Moran joins us in this edition of Causeway Kings. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, fellas. Should be good. Looking forward to it. So thank you very much. Oh, we're looking forward to it, too. I hope you enjoy questions in the peppered at you variety. That's pretty much what we have for you. It's going to be a great time. It's perfect. All right, let's go. I love it. I love it. Right <laughs> off the bat. Away we go, folks. Ian Moran here on Causeway Kings. I know. Appreciate it, Benny. Uh, Ian, this is awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, one thing I always like to talk to our ask our guests is, you know, how old were you when you got into hockey and what was it about the game that really, you know, made you fall in love with it and want to pursue it as a career? So I was in uh, kindergarten. I actually lived in Colorado at the time. And uh, the local youth hockey organization was Arvada and they sent out a, uh, you know, I was going to say an email, but obviously it wasn't an email. They sent out whatever a piece of paper that said, uh, you want to come and play in the might see house team, you know, come on in. So I played for the Vulcan Flames. And uh, our coach was a 15, 16 year old kid named Spike. And we'd get on the ice and Spike would play keep away and work on his hands all day. And we'd chase him around. And that's how I uh, started playing for the Vulcan Flames in Colorado. <laughs> That's wow. unbelievable. A coach named Spike. He he please tell me yeah. he wore like a, a spiky dog collar and like a leather jacket with no sleeves on the ice. No, but this is it, he wore a baby blue uh, ski jacket, and that leads into something later. But there we go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Spike Spike had sick black feathered hair. And they, uh, he was always just dangling around. No idea what whatever happened to Spike or what he did, but he uh, he made me want to go to the rink every day. So it was uh, I guess he did his job. It was awesome though. That's awesome. And, you know, from there, obviously, you know, you started off, you know, kindergarten and was it just more like for fun playing on local youth teams, club teams, kind of what was your, you know, career path from there? Um, so we ended up, we lived in Colorado until I was uh, finished third grade. I was pretty lucky out there with a coach who was, at that point, he was a guy who played at University of Minnesota and he ended up moving to uh, Colorado. So he coached us on a, on a might team. And then from there, I moved to Connecticut and lived in Connecticut from fourth until uh, eighth grade. I was really fortunate there. I had Scotty Lachance's father and Brian Leach's father, 
as wow. our uh, as our coaches. And one of the things I look back on that I always thought was awesome and I thought it was great for all of us was uh, we had two goalies and 10 skaters on the team and everybody, we rotated positions all the time. There were no set positions. Everybody played D, wing, center. I mean, the goalies were goalies, but uh, – Everybody was playing everything. Everybody was, you had to think. It wasn't just, you know, little Johnny's a centerman and he's going to play in the middle the whole time. We rotated all around. And I think that every one of us played some form of college hockey, except for one of the goalies who ended up playing football at Princeton. But it was, uh, we were lucky that we had those guys as coaches. And then in eighth grade, moved up to Acton, Mass, and ended up at Belmont Hill. And again, was very fortunate. Um, at that point, I wasn't didn't play uh, town hockey. I went and played for uh, the North Shore Raiders, who don't exist anymore. And we had a pretty good team there. John Lilly was on it. Keith Kachuk, uh, a bunch of kids that played at MC. Um, it was it was a good team. But then our coach there was a guy named Jim Fullerton, and Jim was um, he was actually roommates and played juniors with Stevie Casper, and had come down to Boston with him. So we had Jim as our coach. And um, from there, we'd kind of mix and match in the summer. Had more good coaching. Jim, Jim and uh, Charlie McCarthy, who played at BC, and his son Michael ended up being uh, college roommates with me. And they were our coaches for, like, the summer league thing. We were called the New England Colonials. We had uh, sick white satin pants. And we'd go up to Canada every summer and play in a couple of tournaments. And then from there... Went to uh, Belmont Hill, and I've said this all along uh, with Mr. Martin as the as a coach at Belmont Hill. Uh, he he taught me things about matching speed and angles and depth and width and all sorts of stuff that uh, without him I don't know if I would have ever been taught it. So without without Mr. Martin at Belmont Hill, I don't think there's a chance in hell that I could have played uh, pro. Never mind in the NHL, and then was fortunate went from there. To, uh, to BC, played for Lenny Siglarski in Lenny's last year. He was the winningest coach at the time. And then Cedar's first, Cedar Chuck's first year. And uh, I turned pro after my sophomore year. So I was really fortunate from the time I was young that I had uh, coaches that had played and had been successful and played at different levels. And they understood that, you know, obviously we wanted to win. We wanted to compete. And we wanted to be the best. But understood that there was more to it than, uh, you know, just – you know, I, like I said, go back to the the uh, Squirt and Peewee team where we had ten kids and we rotated positions. I think that really set the foundation for for you know my brain and probably all of our brains and how we were able to think and process you know the games at different levels as we went up. I mean, we had we had guys on all over from Scotty to Scotty the chance to Mike Tragio, who's the coach at Hotchkiss now, and you know Trag played at Brown and then he was he played in the minors for a while, and we had. Uh, uh, we we had just had a bunch of guys that ended up playing. I honestly think it had a lot to do with with them, with that coaching staff, with Mr. Chance and Mr. Leach teaching us to to play all the different positions. So I was I was really lucky. Yeah, that that was going to lead to my next question, Ian. You know, I I've been coaching hockey now. This is going to be oh my god, at least fifteenth or sixteenth year. Um, I've coached you know at the U fourteen level, U sixteen, U eighteen. I coach at the high school level now. Um, I coached at the might level last year for Chiggs over the um, Vikings militia. And, you know, Chiggs you talk about, oh, Chiggs is awesome. Just an absolute yeah. beauty. beauty he, is, human he, is a, he is a good human, 100%. Absolutely. Well. Um, you know, and one of the things that I, I always, you know, that I just, that struck me was just when you talked about having, you know, the 10 guys on the team and everyone playing a different position, you know, 
I, I try to do that even at the high school level, you know, Hey, listen, if we have a defenseman that's out or in the box, I'm going to need someone. If I can't, you know, put a six defenseman out there in a PK or power play, I need a forward that can go back and play D as well. You know, can you just elaborate on like what you think the importance of players knowing each position, you know, means to their game, like, like it did to you? Uh, I can, I can just tell you this. I was lucky with the, with Mr. Lachance and Mr. Leach teaching us to do that. When I got to Belmont Hill, Mr. Martin had uh, on penalty kills, he had the defenseman would take the draw on a defenseman's own face-off. And that kept on going right till I was in the NHL. And it started with a foundation of youth coaches that uh, I was primarily a D-man until I got to the NHL. But I, I played games at wing and I played games at center in the NHL, took face-offs. Um, I, think, I just think it's really important that you know, a kid when he's a squirt, he's he's not a you know he's not a winger. He's a, you know want you want kids that are going to be hockey players because that helps them win jobs when they're older. It helps them earn a spot on a roster. You know, there's a I've told this story before. There's a uh, there's a kid named Colin Sissons. He's a Rhode Island kid. He's he's playing down in South Kent right now. But it was you know probably two years ago. This right around right now was right when COVID was coming out. And we were able to start getting back on the ice and. You know, he, he was just a little guy at the time. They all, it was all a bunch of 2006s and, you know, some of the names you might know now of kids that are on national teams and are going to end up being Division One kids and who knows what happens beyond. But, you know, Colin was was out there and I uh, and we were doing, you know, kind of offense, defense, out games. And I said to him, I did, it was like the first day. I said, you know, what what uh, what position do you play? And he could just look up and said, what do you mean? I said, well, what position do you play? He looked at me. He goes, "I'm a hockey player. I can play right wing, left wing, center. Hell, I can play D if you want me to. I'm a hockey player." And I was like, "That's a that's the best answer." And that's if you watch Colin play now, you can see that he, you know, he's a hockey player. He thinks the game. He processes the game. And you know, I don't know what he had exactly for uh, for youth coaches growing up. I know he did some stuff at advantage with with Kevin Poolin. So, but I would imagine that you know he played different positions and got to think and process things differently. And as kids get older, you know, your roles change and the way to fit on a team and earn a, earn a spot is, you know, the more versatile you are, the better it's going to be. You can't, you can't just be a one-shot one pony. It doesn't work. Uh, absolutely. I cannot agree more with you on that, Ian. Sorry for all the names. That's just how my brain works. <laughs> no, that, that's great because I, mean, I you know, again, I, I, I love hockey. I, I'm a rink rat myself and I, and I love seeing the progress of, you know, a lot of the local kids. And I actually, a kid I coached for two years at Braintree High, um, he recently is going to be graduating this year, um, did your skills camp constantly. His name is Tyler Opila. Big, oh, yeah. tall. Uh, yeah. The kid just loves hockey, and he did whatever he could to make himself better. And to be honest with you, like, I, I don't think he ever would have been a real hockey player if it wasn't going for attending like your camps and your skill sessions. And, you know, it just he, – he's the same, same way. Coach, I just want to be on the team. I just want to play. I'm a hockey yeah. player. I'll play anything. You know, he's like, he would say, coach, I'll go play forward if you need me to. I'll, I'm a defenseman, but I'll play forward. I don't care. I just want to play, you know? So that, that's yeah. something you love to hear from kids. Uh, Tyler's is just a really nice kid, you know, big and tall. And, you know, he, he'd always come and do the skills. He'd have a great attitude and work hard. And it was kind of good. He didn't, he didn't care if it wasn't perfect. He, or he didn't get upset with himself. If it wasn't perfect. Perfect. He went back and he would do it again and do it again until he got it right. He was, he was always just a really, really nice kid. Yep. Absolutely. So I wanted to, um, hey, it's Merrill here, Ian. I, I wanted to just ask you a, a question um, real quick, how uh, how you ended up going in. You, so you, you went to Belmont Hill and um, just yep. give our listeners just a, a brief, you know, synopsis on how the draft process went. So you look, you got drafted right out of uh, 
Belmont Hill to uh, Pittsburgh Penguins in 1990. So just describe how that kind of went. So was a, the draft is a little bit different then. So the rule, the rules were different. So I, at that point, um, you know, if you were a prep kid or a high school kid in Minnesota or Massachusetts or wherever you were eligible after three years of varsity. So, you know, we got, that's when you saw primarily the kids got drafted after their junior year. So for me, it was after my junior year in high school, uh, you know, and they had, they had different free agency rules then too, because if you, if you were an American and you got drafted, the team that had your rights, if you went to college, held, held your exclusive rights until two years after you graduated from school, from college. And that, that isn't the case now. You can see the kids that get drafted. They've got four years. You know, you see kids that, that you know, force free agency. So it's a little bit different now. It's a little bit more of a game from the NHL team side with if they're going to pick kids when they think they're going to be ready to turn pro, will they want to turn pro with the way juniors is, is so prevalent now. You know, most kids, if they come out of prep school, they're going to have to spend a year or two in juniors. You know, that eats up two years of their, you know, the NHL teams negotiating rights with, with that with that player. So there's, uh, it's just different how it how it goes into, you know, with the CBA and the free agency, how, it, how that can impact and affect the, the high school kids who get drafted. Um, yeah, but so when, when we got drafted, it was after junior year in high school. So you, were, you, you had kids that were playing in high school and prep school that were drafted the year before. I think every year I was at Belmont Hill, we had a couple of kids get drafted. Uh, my year I got drafted by Pittsburgh and Kenny Martin got drafted by Buffalo. So that was, that was in the 90 draft and the 89 draft. It was uh, Jackie Callahan. I think he was a Capitals pick. And the year before that, it was Ronnie Pascucci. He was also a Capitals pick. I ended up playing with those two guys that in college at BC. So there were, there were kids every year. There were very good players that, um, you know, because of the way free agency was kind of set up and it wasn't so prevalent to go to juniors that kids were getting drafted, you know, right away when they were eligible. Whereas, you know, now it's just a little bit different when you see the kids, they're, you know, some really good hockey players here in New England and playing, you know, prep school hockey. And, you know, there's, there's people that'll talk about so-and-so won't get picked, you know, the level's not as good, the level's not as good, but there's just, there's a lot more that goes into it than just if the level's not as good, it has to do with, you know, the time frame on how long it's going to take that kid until the NHL team thinks that the, that player would actually be ready. And, you know, is he, is he going to be ready before those four years come in? And, you know, that's where you see kids that they don't get selected. They end up signing college, you know, free agent deals. Like you just had McLaughlin with the, with the Bruins and you had Hardman a couple of years ago with Chicago. Uh, those are kids that came through and they weren't selected and they end up signing nice free agent deals at free agent opportunities. And, you know, so it's, it's a little bit different, but, um, you know, it was just it was a pretty great experience. It was fun to get drafted, and you know all that kind of stuff. It was it was a dream come true. I always, I always, you know, not always thought I was going to get drafted, but leading into the draft, I thought I was, I thought I was going to be selected. So it was, uh, it was pretty fun though. It was, it was uh, ended up being a great spot for me. Uh, hey, Ian, it's uh, BJ Brian Johnson. Knows hey. BJ, um, I just had a question, uh, or a couple that kind of related to each other. One is, uh, you know, you see a lot of times these days where kids specialize on one sport. And oh. play that sport all the way through growing up. And I just want to know what you thought about that is you one are more proponent of you know, playing different sports, getting, you know, you know, different things in your brain and in your body, not using those same muscles each time. Or how do you feel about that? Um, so I'm going to, I'll probably be somewhere in the middle here. Uh, I think if a kid wants to play a sport and he wants to do it all the time, let him do it it's on his brain and that's what they want to do. That's how I was from the time I was a kid. That's all I wanted to do was play. 
Uh, my parents didn't tell me to go out in the driveway and shoot pucks. They didn't tell me to do the stride board. They didn't tell me to stick handle. I did it because I wanted to do it and I loved doing it. And my whole goal was to play in the NHL. So I think if you have a kid that is going out on his own to shoot pucks or, you know, play the piano or do whatever they're going to do. And that's what they want to do. I don't, I don't think you need to, you know, time frame it and, and squash their fun. Um, at the same point, I also don't think they need to be skating 12 months a year or, you know, doing whatever they're going to do 12 months a year, especially when they're little. I think it helps. Uh, I think it helps how you process things. I think as if you're on a team and you're playing different sports, odds are you're not going to be the best at, you know, everything. So it helps you to figure out how to fit into a team and have different reactions with wins and losses. And, you know, I, I personally think it's really important for the kids to learn how to, you know, win with class and, and not act like, you know, a bunch of punks. And I also think it's kids that, have to learn with losing and you know how to battle back from that and you know build perseverance and you know competitiveness and all that kind of stuff but one of one of the things that I really I do believe in and I, I don't know if anyone will ever really get me to to shake this one is I think that the kids in in New England skate a ton in, until they get to you know U14 where I think they're skating as much as any any other groups in the country and then at, at U14 since the you know prep schools and the way it comes in uh, most of the prep schools have where the kids have to play a sport all three seasons. So you have all these kids that get to the age of 14 and 15 where they should be focused on a sport. And they, you know, they, I, I think it's fine if the kid wants to play hockey nine months a year, he wants to play baseball and he wants to do whatever and, and play. But, you know, you get to the prep schools and the kids, they aren't skating as much and playing as much as they are in the rest of the country. And it turns into the split season games, you know, in the Northeast. And I think that impacts the kids' success through those four years in their development because, to me, if you want to play and you want to play at the highest level and you want, you know, you want to play in pros, NHL, if you want to be an Olympian, if you want to play Division One college, if you want to do all that when you're 14, 15 years old, I don't think it's outlandish that a kid knows what he wants to do and he's gonna, he wants to train and skate and compete for nine months out of the year, and you know, if it gets to you know, USA Hockey has their national championships in March or gets to the season's over and the kid wants to play lacrosse or baseball or he wants doesn't, you know, wants to do whatever. He wants to be in a play. I don't, it doesn't really matter to me, but I think if a kid wants to be good and he wants to excel at it and I, I kind of, I understand the word elite. I think uh, it's kind of misplaced with, with you sports, but if a kid wants to be the best and he wants to compete, he's going to put the time in to be the best and he's going to have to work at it but he's not going to have to view, he doesn't, he can't necessarily view it as work. He has to view it as an opportunity to get, to get better. And I know that sounds ridiculous and foolish, but I think if you take the, the best kids at any sport or anything they're doing, they're not viewing it as work. You know, they're, they're viewing it as what they love to do and they're viewing it as an opportunity to get better. So I, um, I'm a, I'm a, I don't know how to say it. Like, I think there's a, when kids are little that they should play different sports because it teaches you how to fit in. It teaches you how to do things. But when you get to, uh, 14 and 15 and you have people talk about, you know, you need to diversify and be a multi-sport athlete. Yeah, that's fine. But if you really want to be good and you really want to play and you really want to, you want to be a musician, you want to be the best, whatever you're doing, you got to put the time in it. You don't, you don't get good at something just by sitting on your butt and doing something else. You, you get good at something by working at it and enjoying it and doing it every day that you think you can get better than somebody else. You know, it's, I don't, um, it's probably not the answer everybody wants, but I, I don't really care. I think that if you if you want to be good and you want to be the best, you got to put the time in to do it. And it can't come from mom and dad. It's got to come from the from the from the kid. Doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, whatever. 
it's got to come from inside the kid because the parents can never want it more than than a child. It's got to be the kid who has a desire to do it. So, no, I don't think you I think you're not wrong on that though. I mean, I think everybody has like kind of their own feel on that, and you yeah. know, shooting up the middle is not a bad you know way to go about it. You know, as you said, once they're more in the 15 years old area, they kind of have that idea or drive that where they're going. So, sorry. But I just wanted to piggyback off that one quick question or another question. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think it's easy if, you know, I, I do a ton of skills with little guys up to, you know, pros. And it, it's really easy to see along the way with the younger ones up until they're, you know, 14 or 15 when it's mom and dad that are bringing them to the session or mom and dad that are bringing them to the gym or mom and dad taking them wherever they need to do. And you, you can see it, you know, 16 when all of a sudden, you know, it really matters to the player or if it always mattered more to mom and dad. And you can, that's where it kind of gets fractured. And you see, you can kind of, you can see kids that will fall off. And it doesn't mean that they're going to be bad. It just means that they don't really have that, you know, that burn in them to, to, to be the best. It was always, you know, mom and dad wanted a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, I just piggyback on that one second one uh, was like, when you were starting out, like when you got to Belmont Hill and all those, when did you, like, I know kids these days start a lot earlier than probably when we were growing up, but taking care of their body, working out, going to the gym, doing all those things. Um, when did you start? Like, um, I mean, like hockey, hockey wise, you know, I always shot pucks and did all that kind of stuff and stick handle and did a stride board from the time I was little. I, I did that. Like, um, as far as diet, um, I was always a, I was always a super skinny kid. I was probably like 140 pounds freshman year, and then in between, I was maybe like 155, 160, you know, sophomore year, and then all of a sudden, junior and senior year, I was 190, 195. And when I went into school, college, I was 205. So, um, I had the I still have the body type where it's, it's not uh, not hard for me to put on weight. I can I can pack <laughs> it on pretty easily. I mean, I'll talk. To, I'll, it's I tell people this, it's hysterical. They'll be like, Whoa, you look like you lost weight. What were you up to 220? And I'm like, oh, geez, I'm down to 230. What do you think? Huh? You know, they can't even, <laughs> you can't even understand how, uh, how like how dense I am, I guess. I don't even talk about my brain, but just how, how dense, but you know, for me, I would say probably at, at that point, they didn't have the NTDP team. They had a select 16 and a 17 team. And I remember being, Selected to go out to Colorado Springs, and one of the biggest things they had there was diet. And then you were able to go through the cafeteria and see the food, and there were other Olympians out there and see what they were eating. And you know, there were powerlifters out there, and you saw you know people that were you know bobsledders and all that kind of stuff. And you just start paying attention. So for me, it was probably like 16, 17 when I started paying attention to it. I didn't have uh, you know like protein powder shakes or you know creatine or aminos or anything like that. Uh, I never was a creatine guy or, or really with aminos, but it was, I would say when I got, when I turned pro, probably like 20, I turned pro when I was 20. And I know when I came back for my second year, after my first year pro, I had changed dramatically on how I viewed food is not food, but is, is energy and how it was going to take me into the, into the next day and be able to train and perform. So it was probably like 21. I think the kids now are dramatically earlier than that because there's just, there's so much more that goes into it. Um, but for me personally, it was something that I always really, really paid attention. Once, once I got Wizard Pro, it was something I really, really paid attention to. But as a you know, a prep school kid in you know, college, I 
good team meals, but it wasn't, you know, I loved a chicken parm sub and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't like I avoided it. So, oh, hell yeah. He's not wrong, folks. Yeah. He's not wrong. And on that note, real quick, Ian, <laughs> where was the best chicken parm from? You feel free. Across, across all your travels, where did you find Any the best city. chicken parm? Chicken parm sandwich or just chicken parm in general? The, be- uh, the best chicken parm, however it was presented to you. Uh, there's actually a place we live, we live down the South shore. There's a place called a three in Kingston. That is really good chicken parm right now. When I was playing, we, when I was playing, I didn't eat chicken parm. I was, uh, you know, when I was playing pro, I ate, I ate a ton of spinach and broccoli. I didn't eat as much pasta, spinach, broccoli, and salmon. I, uh, I killed on that stuff. But once I retired, I started eating much more chicken parm or chicken parm subs. And I guess that's probably why, you know, down to two thirty. But uh, <laughs> it's, um, I, I don't know. I mean, that's hard to say. I know A3 would be the place in Kingston where I get it now. It's, it's, it's a great spot. You get the vodka sauce and it's awesome for, this, it's, for the it, pasta on the side. Oh, that sounds good. It, it's yeah. funny. It's very up, good. It's funny that you bring up chicken palm because no lie, a, a good friend of mine um, lives right around the corner from me and, here in Braintree. Our kids hang out together all the time. He's like a diehard chicken palm guy. To the point where he literally started a website, chickenpompom.com guy. And he would oh, go yeah. around to different restaurants and try the chicken palm and then like rate it on his website and stuff like that. <laughs> that sounds great. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. he's like, it was the best. I like, got to eat and then rate their food after. Not a bad oh, yeah. side gig. No, it's tremendous. Be, that would be nice. That's beautiful. All right, getting back on to hockey talk now. We're going to move to Beacon. He's got the next question for you. Wanted to get your take on what led you to BC. I know you were drafted right out of high school, prep school, I should say, from Belmont Hill. Uh, but what led you to BC? I know this was two years before Jerry York took over there, correct? Yeah, so I, I was there for Lenny Stoglarski's last year and Steve Searchuk's first. Um, you know, there was, there, was, there was a lot that went into it, uh, some of it off ice, some of it on ice. Uh, there was – the kid that went to Belmont Hill before me who was actually playing at BC and, you know, took my visits and looked at the schools. And he said, uh, for goals, advice was, you know, you're going to have great options. You're never really going to regret uh, any of them. You're going to have an opportunity with, you know, to play pro on the other side if you keep working. But if you got hurt day one on campus, what would be the school that you'd want to go to? And um, for me at that point, it was BC. It was, um, I just had I like the campus, like you know everything about it. I knew that there was they were going to be losing kids to the '92 Olympic team, so there's going to be an opportunity to play right away and play big minutes, play real minutes. I liked that. Um, I I don't want to say I knew going into school that I was only going to be there for two years, but when I was being recruited, I had told all the coaches that my my goal was I wanted to turn pro, but when I was 20, and I was I was going to work for that and. My goal was to be in the NHL. Um, it wasn't that playing college didn't mean anything to me. It, it certainly did. But from you know, from the time I was little, really and truly, the playing in the NHL was what I wanted to do. It was really all I thought about. So just everything combined, uh, BC was a spot. It was it ended up being a, being a great place for me. Um, you know, I had great roommates, had great you know, great friends there, all that kind of stuff. Met my wife there, all the stuff that, uh, that should be happening in college. It was fun. That's awesome. No, and it's all about the memories, if nothing else, right? Yep. 
Yeah, now, it was uh, it was great. Did you ever get to meet Jerry? I know Jerry Rick was there after you. Like, was he ever, you know, when he was going to be coming and taking over? Like, did you ever get to meet him before you left? Uh, I had already. So uh, my sophomore year, when our, when our season ended, I went and played in the world championships. So, um, you know, I was lucky. I played on two world juniors and that was, that was good. And then when, when, uh, you know, our season ended, our, our college season ended, we had a couple of weeks off and you, the way the world championships work, you, when the NHL teams are done, they send, you know, USA hockey puts in a request for guys, that, the teams that didn't make the NHL playoffs. And I was, you know, one of however many college guys that was able to play then. So I, kind of at that point was in the in the mood or in the mode that I was going to be turning pro. So Mike Bilberry actually came in and was coach of BC for, you know, I don't know, three or four weeks before coach York took over. Milbury never, never, you know, coached a game or did anything like that. But it was, I think my, my class at BC is the only class in sports and college sports that had four different coaches in four years with, uh, uh, with Lenny Cedar and then uh, Milbury and then coach York. So, um, but it's fine. I know, I mean, I know coach York to say I don't, but I, I never, I never played, played for him or anything like that though. He's, he's obviously, he's, he's one of the all time greats, but I, I, uh, just timing wise, I wasn't, I wasn't there for it. I was already gone. And he's now newly retired as of a couple of days ago, but a week ago. Yeah. yeah amazing. You know, yeah, amazing. 50 years as a division one college hockey coach. He started coaching at yeah. 26 years old. That's insane. That's awesome. and, and then That's he's so been, great. what, 20, 28 years at BC or 26 years or something like that at BC? It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It really you is. Know? I was reading a, a quote of his today. They were asking if he had ever had uh, opportunities to go to the NHL. And uh, he said he had a couple. But the way he looked at it is you get hired, you get hired, you get fired in about four years. And then you're just kind of on the, you know, on the carousel going around to get hired and hired. He feels as though he was very fortunate that he never was fired, which is, you think about it that way, it's pretty unbelievable. You know, 50 yeah. years as a head coach and he never got canned is wild. That is pretty that's amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, no, that, that's fantastic. So, you know, just to fast forward, so, you, you know, you do two years at, at BC and then you decide to leave and go pro and it looks like you end up in the IHL, the Cleveland Lumberjacks. Um, yep. First yeah. of all, what the hell is the IHL? I don't ever remember hearing the IHL. So the I at that point, um, NHL teams either had their minor league, top minor league affiliate in the American League or in the IHL. And we were the Penguins' top minor league team. We were in Cleveland. Uh, Kalamazoo was uh, was Dallas. Cincinnati was Anaheim. Uh, you know, there was, it was just a different setup in Indy was Chicago, Phoenix was LA. So it's, it was a lot of the same teams that are in the American league right now, especially, you know, like that, that mid belt there, but it was mm -hmm. at that point, it was the IHL. It was the, it was nicknamed the black eye. It was, it was a very, very tough league. Um, the eye was different than the American league because they had different roster rules. So you could have older guys. So you'd have. Uh, you know, some guys that had played a couple hundred games in the NHL and they were playing in the, playing in the IHL and they were on a two-way contract. So they were making some money from the NHL team and then they were making, you know, about the same money from the team in the IHL, from the ownership in the IHL. So it was, you had some, you had some really good players that were playing in the I that, uh, 
that were making pretty good money, you know, a couple hundred grand, 250 grand to play, playing the IHL in the nineties, which, which was big money. So they, uh, it was just, it was a good league. It was, it was very similar to the American league. It was just a little bit older and probably a little bit tougher. Um, but it was, it was a great league. It was a great place to turn pro Cleveland to Pittsburgh was very short. So we had, we had guys get called up. Um, my first year we, we had, well, we weren't very, we were mathematically limited end of February, like February 24, something ridiculous, but it was, they, they played short rosters. You know, our, the teams in the eye, like we played 10 forwards, 60, two goalies. Do you see the teams in the American league now? They play four, six and two, you know, four lines. So 12, 12, six and two, which is different. Um, so if you're playing in the eye and you're a prospect, you played a ton and you played a ton and a ton. And that's what it was. And, there were seven of us that were in Pittsburgh that all that were in Cleveland that all played in Pittsburgh the next year that year when we were when we were bad when we were really bad. Um, but you know there was management in Pittsburgh understood what was going on that they needed to have the young guys playing, especially with the with the roster they had in Pittsburgh and the contracts they had in Pittsburgh that they were giving out that they were going to need young guys that were going to come in and contribute and compete and, and not be making a ton of money. So in, in that way. Uh, Cleveland to Pittsburgh was actually a, a great situation. It was only a couple hours apart. You, you called up, you could make the ride, you could practice in the morning, you called up and be there for a game at night. So it was, you know, similar to Providence, Boston type of situation. Did you find that the transition from BC to professional hockey difficult with, you know, with regards to like speed of the game, intensity, toughness was how long would you say it took you to develop to the overall pro game? Um, speed is probably very similar. From college to from college to pro, I think that the uh, skate everybody even then, you know, the, I don't think that the difference in pace was that much different. The difference between college and the American League and then American League and the NHL is your brain and how quickly you can process stuff and how how quickly you can you can read what's going on because there's you know there's Division One kids that are very successful in, in Division One and they just they can't figure out how to play pro and it all has to do with processing and and how quickly you can process how quickly you can see you know how quickly you can break down who's righties who's lefty who's a passer who's a shooter you know can guys handle stuff on their backhand can they you know all sorts of stuff you and as you're playing you just have to be smart enough to figure it out so you know coming up coming out of college you're wearing a mask you know and then you go you know go right into ihl there's no half show there's no nothing there's no mask and all of a sudden you're you're a college kid playing in the eye. And like I said, at that point, it was called the black eye because there were so many fights. You, you've you got to fight and they, everybody wants to fight a college kid because they think you don't know what you're doing. So you, you end up getting in a ton of fights. Um, <laughs> and it's just, the way, it's just the way it goes, just the way it was. And, um, you know, it's, it's a different game, college to pro. College uh, is much, you know, it's much more scrambly. There's people running, people running all over the place. It's, uh, it's not as controlled. But when in pro, um, for the most part, guys are where they're supposed to be. And if they're not where they're supposed to be, it's a breakdown. And that's when you see the other team scoring. Um, so, but, but for me, it's the difference between college to the minors and the minors to the NHL is just honestly how quickly you can process what's happening and out there. Um, you know, it's kids that are hyper-focused on the puck are going to have a real hard time transitioning as they get higher and higher. And that doesn't matter if you're going from Peewee to Bantam, Bantam to high school, midget, whatever it is. It's There's so much else that's going on out there and you have to be very aware and locate, you know, it's 
I guess the way to talk about it would be if you're a, you know, you're a football fan and you talk about, you know, Brady playing quarterback and he's got his wide receivers and they can look at the deep back and they both recognize if the deep back is on his inside shoulder, outside shoulder, where his feet are, where they're placed. And, the, you know, the deep back's giving him a, giving him a tell of where, where he's going to go or how he's going to cover. And that the wide receiver and the quarterback have to be on the same page to make it work. Well, as you, as you get higher in hockey, even though it's a, it's a much more fluid sport than, than football, you know, there's tells going on the whole time and you have to be able to figure out, you know, those tells you have to know the other team. Like I said, who's righties, who's left, you can handle passes, who sweeps their pass, who slaps their pass, all that kind of stuff that once you can figure all that, all that out, you have to be able to figure it out. That's how you, that's how you keep moving up because there's, there's guys that are playing division one. There's guys that are playing division three that are phenomenally skilled players that are very, very good players. Um, you know, but as you as you get higher and higher, it's it's the smartest that are the ones that keep on going. To me, it's when I'm evaluating kids, it's all it comes down to their brain. For me, I think it's it's the brain is what distinguishes and separates everybody. You were talking about uh, guys who are always up for fights in the black eye. You know, I I think of a guy you played with, Chris Tamer. You played with in the minors, and uh, oh yeah, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was uh, you know the the '90s is where I really fell in love with hockey in general, but um. Looking at it, a couple quick, I wanted to ask a two-part question. Just, I know you were talking about how um, it was an, it was an older league with the IHL, but just a, just a quick hockey DB perusal. Peter Sikora played at 16 with you guys. Like that's crazy. Yeah. Peter Sikora did it. And then Robert Dome ended up being a first round pick by the Penguins. He also, he's playing in Vegas at that point. Uh, You know, Dome was, uh, and then what's his name? Radek Bank also did it. So there, yeah. at that point, there was a couple European could, Europeans could come over and they could play younger. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I have no idea why or what the rule was or why they did it, but it was it was the eye. So we had Sakura um, when he was he was sixteen, seventeen, yeah. So yeah. It, was, it was just it was different. It was it was great. It was a ton of fun. You know, it was just, this is the Wild West. It really was. But looking at it, it too, was unbelievable. So- <laughs> so you, you you get called so you, you play in the in the eye and then you get called up it looks like your first taste the nhl is in the playoffs in 94 95 yeah. in the lockout shortened season yeah. tell us about how that must have been a whirlwind is like a 22 23 year old kid you get dropped into the playoffs yeah so uh the year before my first year i got called up but i was a black ace so i never never played never i never skated uh, I actually did travel, but I just never got into a game. And then the following year, I spent the year in Cleveland playing, which was which was great. It was the right thing for me, without a doubt. And then got called up for the playoffs and started playing. You know, it was just it was a different it was a different time. It was just a different situation. That that Penguins team was loaded. Um, yeah. They should have won it in '93. Uh, that was the year that um, Kevin Stevens broke his face. That was probably the best of the Penguins teams. There was that '93 team. They were they were it they were great and um and the following year was just there were some injuries so i ended up getting called i ended up getting into the playoffs to play uh against washington and, and the devils so it was i mean it was it was all your dream you know playing the nhl so it was awesome you don't really care if it's regular season or playoffs you just you just want to play and um you know then the next year uh trained to, to go in trained differently to go in and play you know a different t- style of play than i always played growing up and you know played i think around 50 games and then tore up my shoulder and had sh- shoulder surgery missed the rest of that year 
And I started out the following year for uh, like 30 games, I think, in Cleveland again on like a conditioning stint, which is an extended conditioning stint, whatever. I did get uh, get timing and all that kind of stuff back and did that and got called up and then that was it from there. That must have sucked, Ian, because that 95-96 team was absolutely loaded too. And that was the – that was the yep. freaking Florida Panthers delaying the game. That was the year, year of the rat. Yeah. yeah yep. rat. That team, that, that team was an unbelievable team. Like, I mean, right there with yeah. 93, we should have won the, should have won the cup. I mean, um, uh, that, that must have killed Francis, Ronnie Francis broke his ankle in that, in that series against Florida. And that was, that was pretty much it. So, I mean, he's, uh, obviously one of the best ever, but he was just a quiet leader. And, um, kind of set the tone for how everything was done that year when he broke his ankle. That was, that was it. That was, I don't want to say that led to our, our loss, but that was just a huge factor in, in uh, us getting knocked out. But yeah, we had, we had, a, we had a really good team that year. Really, really good team. Loaded team. I mean, yeah. I mean, you look at yeah, the you got, you got Lemieux and then you also played with, uh, you know, a 23 year old Yarme Yager. I mean, yeah. w- what was he like at, at that, that age just, I mean, he had to have the best tier in hockey, the best half field in <laughs> hockey. <laughs> yeah. So Yags and I are the same draft. So I had myself, Yags, and uh, Chris Tamer all out of that draft that we're playing on that team. Um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you this about Yager. At that point, he, you know, was probably six four. He's probably two hundred forty five, two hundred fifty pounds at that at that point. And if you watch the tape then, with how badly he got mugged every game. If he was able to play in today's rules when you can't hook, clutch, grab, and, you know, just hang on guys and how he loved to score or loves to score, I honestly don't know if he would, would be stopped because he was an absolute animal. There was there was nobody, you know, Lemieux was the best I played with, and, you know, there's no debate about that. Uh, Alexi Kovalev was the most skilled, and I think you could ask anybody, Kovalev's skills are outlandish. Like, you can't even, you can't even pretend that anyone's in the same – classes him it's just he got more enjoyment out of making people look stupid than he did scoring his his <laughs> skills are out just incredible yeah uh, but there was nobody that loved to score like yags and no i mean he got absolutely mugged and mauled every game every shift he was an animal um you know and he was a young kid putting up huge points like i don't really and truly a lot of guys in that era got mugged and they put up points mario being one of them and you know, there are guys that, that got absolutely, you know, beat up. But Yags was – I don't know if today's rules, if he was coming in at 20 years old or 18 years old, he'd, he'd be really, really difficult to stop. Really difficult to stop. So. I mean, he should. He's 50 years old and he's still playing. I mean, it's unbelievable. Now, I mean, you yeah. hear – I remember when he was, you know, up and coming and playing, you know, in the league, you hear stories that, like, he'd be in the rink at 11 o'clock at night working out like why everyone's home sleeping or out partying like, is, is was he like that at a young age at 23 always in the gym just trying to get better each day yeah he definitely has that work i think he trained uh a ton his legs were huge he was like two different body types uh you know from his belly button up he was kind of like kind of uh wiry and lean and belly button down he just had massive legs he had a huge butt huge ass it was like a shelf at, the, at his lower back this was was huge um, you know, the, the stories of him going in late to work out there are definitely true. I think if people knew how many of those st- stories there are about guys, not just the superstars, the right, re- just the regular guys that went in and on times to work out, work on things, 
I think people would be shocked. It's, um, you know, guys are playing in the NHL. It's not by accident. Guys work really hard. And Yags would, Yags would go in late. He was the night owl. That's what he did. But there's guys that would get in at six in the morning. There's guys that would go, you know, it, those those stories are, are far more common than people let on. It just happens that Yags is one of the one of the all-time greats, so people love it. But I think I think people would be shocked at how many guys have key, you know, keys to the weight room and keys to the rink and, and so they can get in and do what they need to do. Everybody's different, everybody recovers differently, everybody changes differently. But honestly, I think um I think people would be shocked if they knew how often that guys had keys to get in and do what they needed to do to work out. So I think it's great that Yags has those stories about him. I, he did, he worked his butt off, but I think really and truly that guys are playing in the NHL. It's, it's not just because they work their asses off to be there. No, that's awesome. Yeah. And if I recall, uh, as your career progressed, you had a, a funny trade story involving your trip to the Bruins. Yeah. So um, yeah, that year we had, we had started out uh, doing doing pretty well in Pittsburgh, and at the team Christmas party, we got called in for a uh, by Craig Patrick that we were going to go into another bankruptcy, and if um, anybody had any value, they were they were going to be dealt uh, by the deadline. And the next day, we we traded five guys off our roster for five guys in the Rangers minor league team, the American League, and from that point on, we were we were kind of dead in the water. Um, led to the Penguins being able to select Flurry. And, you know, we all, we all got traded. I think on deadline day, there were 10 or 11 of us that got dealt. Um, my story was that I, I left and I hadn't been traded. I heard rumors that I was going to get dealt to St. Louis. It never happened. And then um, I was home with our oldest daughter uh, playing hopscotch in the, in the driveway. And I got a call from Craig Patrick and uh, told me that I was traded to Boston. And I wrote down uh, OC Michael Connell's phone number in the in driveway chalk in the driveway in Pittsburgh and, you know, got off the phone with Craig and called OC and, you know, I was on a plane a couple of hours later, landed in Logan and then uh, there we were, we were ready to, ready to roll to play. So it was, uh, to be back. uh, tell you the truth. I was devastated to get dealt from Pitt. I had, uh, I'd been there a long time. Um, you know, I kind of had a racket going on. I had before all the social media stuff and all that, I had a TV show and a radio show. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was fun. I had a, had a good thing going there. So to get, get traded out of there, it was devastating to come to Boston. was great. Um, it was great to come, come back with, you know, family and friends around and the Bruins team at that point was, was really good. I think we ended up winning the president's trophy that year. Uh, we ended up having, uh, I think Joe that year, Thornton ended up breaking a rib and was playing with broken ribs against Montreal in the in the first round, and then that was that was pretty much it. You know, that was, I mean, that's how the playoffs work. If you're healthy and your big guns are healthy and everybody else does what they're supposed to do, you can make a run. If your horses get hurt and it's impacting how they play and how they can recover, you know, it just doesn't. You're not going to have a good playoff run. That's just the way it goes. I'm, I'm always fascinated and love seeing, you know, when the team gets knocked out, who is playing with what, because you know guys are playing with broken foot or they're playing with the separated shoulder, all sorts of good stuff. And, you know, then you can look back and you can say, oh, yeah, I can see his groin was bad or, you know, it's it's always pretty obvious. But, you know, health plays a huge role in, in the teams doing well in the playoffs. It's just such a grind and a battle. Now, obviously, walking into this 03-04 Bruins team, I mean, you got Andrew Raycroft and Felix Potvan in net, which – this is a drastically different time than uh, most of us remember currently. 
But uh, can you speak to being able to play with Thornton? You had uh, Rob yeah. Zaminer still around. You had PJ Stock. You had Brian Ralston. You and had Murray. Newble. I was just going to say Glenn Murray was a 32-goal scorer yeah. that season. I mean, Young Bergie. Yeah, I mean, speak to some of yeah. those guys and just how uh, how the experience was getting to work with them and just hitting the ice. Uh, it was it was a close team. Everybody got along really well. Um, Thornton kind of set the tone. He was pretty easygoing. Um, you know, he, the you know the personality you see now, and he's had since he left us was what he was like then. He was young kid, happy go lucky. He wanted to play. Uh, he was damn good. Uh, Glenn Murray, we played together in Pittsburgh too. You know, Muzz was a shooter. Knubel's a big, strong winger. Um, Brian Ralston, I had known from being younger on U.S. teams and World Junior teams, so I'd known him. Uh, you know, he obviously was a, was a heck of a player and had a heck of a college career and then a heck of a pro career. Uh, you know, Ray Croft won the Calder. Felix the Cat was a veteran that helped him out with everything. We had Hal Gill. Yeah, I mean, we had a, we had a ton of good guys. We just um, was what it was, and you know they were they were a close group. Everybody got along really well. Um, it was an easy locker room to go into. Marty Lapointe was there, even though Joe was the captain. Marty was the uh, the real leader of the, the of the whole crew. And then you know Bergeron ended up uh, living with him his first year. But it was it was a, it was a really you know it was a good group of guys. It was a close group, and honestly, it was an easy locker room to go into. There's, there's, there were no egos. That's so awesome. I mean, and we're talking about a Bruins team pre Zidane Chara, pre Mark Savard. Yep. I mean, they weren't there yet. Um, yeah. So that's awesome. Now, uh, obviously, continuing along the journey, I mean, ups and downs. How did it feel being able to say, "Hey, you know what? I'm a part of the black and gold, and we're playing the Canadians." One way or the other, I, I realized the uh, the end of the season was what it was. But how fun was that? Realizing, man. I'm playing in the original six matchup. Uh, were those moments more special for you? Um, I mean, the original sixes are, it's always pretty great at that point. Um, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough before coming to Boston, I was able to play in the Montreal forum, which was great. Um, you know, you, you definitely are very aware of the history that goes on in the original six. And then, you know, the teams that came in at different points in the expansion, or at least I did anyway. I think most of the guys do. Um, you know, but once once you're playing, uh, you know, there's different home ice advantages and the crowd and all that kind of stuff. So that I mean, obviously you're not gonna lie and say that there's no impact, but I think once you're playing, you're just playing to win. I don't I don't think that uh you know, there was never a time I, I think where I thought, Oh god, I'm you know, a Boston kid playing against the Canadians, playing for the Bruins, you know, oh my god, it was the you just you wanna win. You're competitive by nature, all the guys are competitive by nature. I don't think it really mattered who you were playing against that you wanted, you want to win. That's just, that's just the nature of it. At least that's how it was with me. Um, but I, I mean, I'd be lying to say if it wasn't, wasn't awesome to play at Maple Leaf Gardens or Montreal Forum or, you know, any, any of the, any of the original six was, it was phenomenally part of that. See it. You know, there's so much history with the, with the alumni that are around to, to watch. And you're fortunate enough to talk to those guys and see what it was like in their day when they were playing and, you know, some of their stories are just phenomenal. You can, you know, you get a couple of those guys together and they tell, start telling stories about their time. And it's just, it's just unbelievable to listen to what they were going through and what was going on and what was going on in the room. And, you know, it was, um, you know, I was, I was really fortunate and lucky to get traded back to Boston and, and be a part of it. And, and, 
you know, all the guys that played for the Bruins beforehand. It was, uh, it was really, it was, uh, it was honestly a really lucky thing that happened. That, that's awesome. Now, did you have the frosted tips during the Bruins days or because we, no, we, no, no. we were specifically asked <laughs> by Mr. Heath Gordon to ask yeah, you no. about the, uh, the old frosted tip style. No, I had uh, frosted tips in uh, Pittsburgh. So I had, they weren't just frosted tips. It was my whole head was bleached white. So I had no, I had no tips. I had, I had white hair. Uh, and I don't know. I want to say I did that in like 99, maybe 98, 99. And I kept, I had all sorts of hair shoes for a while. So uh, different colors. I had blonde tips. I had a dark, I had, like I said, I had it white. I had a mohawk. I had long mohawk, short mohawk. When I played for the Bruins, I had a mohawk. But I, I warmed up at that point. When I really got into having my hair shoes and all the different colors, I warmed up with my helmet on. I didn't I didn't warm up with my helmet off. So there's, there probably aren't many pictures floating around of me in a uniform with a mohawk. Um, <laughs> so I wasn't I wasn't doing it to get attention on the ice. I did it just because I was kind of a whack job. And at the time, that's what it was. But I had... I think I had a mohawk until I was probably like 33 or 34 years old, but it was, uh, you know, I, like I said, I had, Gordon knows I had hair issues. It was, it was what it was. Now, now I wear a baseball hat every day. I think I wore a baseball hat every day for 10 years. So no more, no more hair issues. <laughs> That's awesome. The hat always solves it all. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, we're going to have to get you a sport in a Causeway Kings hat as soon as we get that new supply in. And uh, I do yeah. hope you like the uh, the black style with the yellow trim. I think it will suit you nice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I literally, I wear I wear baseball every day. Like, I couldn't even tell you the, the last time I wore a hat. I was, I was talking to my one son the other night about uh, the Red Sox. He was asking me about it in 04 when, we, when, uh, when the Red Sox won and what were we doing? And I said, you know, that was when the lockout was, was going on. And if you look at, you know, there's the, the camera, the greatest bar when all the, everybody's throwing the napkins and the beers up in the air. I was in the bar that night. Like I was a diehard Sox fan. So every year from when I was little, I'd, I'd get a red Sox hat at the start of the seat, start of the baseball season. I would wear it until they got knocked out of the playoffs and I'd throw it away or knocked out of the regular season. I'd throw it away. And then in 04, I finally had a hat. I kept it for about three years, and then it just got so gross that it had to be tossed. But yeah, I've worn a hat. I wear a hat constantly, <laughs> constantly. So you're among friends yeah. here. <laughs> yes, it's very easy. You played 15 years, which is you know a real long NHL career, especially these days. Um, what did you have to do? Anything that particularly over those years to help yourself stay healthy? I mean, I know everybody gets little injuries here and there. You know, and then there's that old saying, are you playing injured or are you playing hurt? Every, everybody's playing hurt, without yes. a doubt. Every, everybody's playing hurt. Uh, Injury-wise, I, I had a ton of injuries. So I have, I have an artificial right hip and I have an artificial left knee right now. I had seven knee surgeries. I think I had two shattered bones in my hands, teeth knocked out, broken nose a bunch of times, elbow surgery, two shoulders, ankle. Uh, my body was a mess when I was done. Um, you know, I, I got my, my knee replaced in, uh, February of 2018 and I got my hip replaced in May of 17. And before then I hobbled around pretty badly. Um, you know, but since, since then I, I feel good. I mean, you still have arthritis, you know, arthritis pain, broken bones, in my feet, you deal with that kind of stuff. My hands will hurt now and again, but 
you know, relatively speaking, since I've had the joint replacements, I feel great. I can skate them on the ice, no issues, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was the, the biggest thing I had to do to play was, you know, when, when I first turned pro and growing up, I was a real offensive defenseman. You know, that was, I got it and I went, and that's, that's what I did. And as soon as I got to Pittsburgh and saw what was going on, I realized right away that if I was going to stick around, I was going to have to change how I played to be able to stick around. So I, uh, I just taught myself I, because I was an offensive guy before the, the offensive guys that I played with wanted to play with me because I was, I could pass and I could create space for them or, or create passing lanes. And so I did that, even though I didn't, didn't put up, you know, numbers, I was, you know, a lot of times I was with the offensive guys because I could move the puck, but I turned into a defensive guy that I just ate pucks and block shots and got to the forward's hands as quickly as I could. But it was, uh, you know, I think every, everybody that's playing at any time, every, everybody's hurt all the time. There's nobody that's playing right now that isn't isn't hurt. The majority of them are injured. They're just not injured so badly that they're on IR. Yeah, you're seeing it now with the attrition at the end of the season for the Bruins. They got a bunch of guys uh, nursing through some injuries. Uh, Ian, I just want to ask you real quick, going back through your career, who was your favorite D partner to play with and who was the most difficult guy to stop on the opposing team? Partner would probably have been Casparitis in Pittsburgh. We played uh-huh. together for about three years. So uh, Cas, he was a great partner. He's a great teammate. He was um, absolute gamer. You know, block shots, played tough. A uh, ton of personality. You know, on the ice, lock for him away from the rink. He had a ton of personality. He was he was uh, he was a great team partner. And I, I can tell you though that I don't. There's not many guys I've played with that I didn't like. Like, I don't even know if I can name any. Like, I got along well with everybody. The teams I played on, we were, I was lucky that, you know, everybody got along well. Um, you know, it was – I got traded to Boston. Danny McGillis was my partner. He got traded in San Jose from the same time. So, we finished off as partners. And then I was paired with Brian Burrard. You know, so those are those are great guys yeah. to be partners with. Um, as far as the toughest guy to stop, I, you know, I played against Gretzky, so you'd say Gretzky could be the toughest to stop. But really and truly, every every team, every night when you were going to go in and play, you'd have to be aware because there's there's somebody that can hurt you every shift, no matter what. I mean, the superstars are a different different level. You always have to be extra aware when they're on and what's going on. But you know, the the guys in the NHL, they're they were the best guy in the last team they played on before they got there. So if you give them time and space, they could they can usually make you pay. Um, but guys like Pavel Bure was was really difficult with his with his speed. Solani, Solani, his his pace was was really difficult. Uh, Madonna with how he could skate and how big he was in his reach. Um, you know, then you have you guys like Ray Bork. You grew up idolizing, and and Ryan Leach. You grew up idolizing, and you see what they can do and how they can just you know basically take over, and manipulate the game from the back end and change the entire pace of play with, without doing a whole lot, not looking like you're super busy. Um, you know, really every, every team had somebody you had to pay attention to, but if I was just to say anyone, it would be Gretzky just cause you know, how, how can you not say it's him <laughs> really? You know? Yeah. Well, Ian, I I had a unique question here. I think this is becoming very common across all sports, NBA, MLB, NHL as well. Um, everyone, when they retire, tries to start transitioning to another career, it seems like for the most part, if they and want to stick around the game. Um, 
you chose to start a website, Neutral Zone. What led you down that career path of joining media? Uh, well, it was because I did other stuff when I first got out of the game and I hated it. So, um, so when I, when I first, first got out, uh, I got offered a job by one of the teams to stay in as, as a player development coach. And I basically, I said no to, cause my body was shot. I needed a break. Um, you know, so I, when I first retired, I was, you know, I, I had a tough time when I first retired. It wasn't a really easy transition. I, I, uh, like I said, all I wanted to do was play. And when I, when I first retired, I was, uh, I was lost without a doubt, uh, to say the least. And then ended up, uh, doing a job as an institutional equity sales trader working in Boston. So I was covering and I was trading stocks for hedge funds and mutual funds and all that kind of stuff. And, Certainly, uh, when you were busy, it was fun. And when you weren't, it was uh, absolutely awful. So I got out of that. And then I got into sales and did all sorts of different stuff. Uh, and everything just kept bringing me back to the rink. And I kept always trying to manipulate my day to get back to the rink. So I get on the ice with the kids and, and start, you know, doing, you know, just trying to have an impact on, on the next wave of players that are trying to come up and, and get into it. So uh, as far as neutral zone, neutral zone was actually started before I got involved. I was, I was, uh, I wasn't involved. It was started by Brendan Collins and uh, a guy named Steve Wilk. He lives in Vermont. He was the money behind it to get it going. And basically what they started out with is you got guys that had coached or played at different levels and you are, it's a scouting service and you try to give honest assessment about where kids are going to end up. You can't, you know, you're not trying to look at all, all sorts of other stuff. You can't have biased. It's really unbiased viewpoints on kids. Um, you know, so the Brian or uh, Brandon Collins first hire was a guy named Brian Murphy, who I actually played with at Belmont Hill and Murphy had been uh, head coach at Tufts for 20 years. And he was, he was neutral zones first hire from Brendan. So those are the first guys. And then, um, Brendan hired a guy, Mullen Merler up in, uh, in Canada and he had been on NCAA benches. He had won U sport championships. He had been coaching all along and he wanted to get into scouting. So they were the, they were the first guys that really got into it. I got hired, I guess it would be five years ago now, four, four, four and a half years ago. Um, and really what we, we try to do, we've got scouts all over that have all, all played or have all coached or have all been general managers at different levels, whether it be, you know, someone that, you know, like I said, Murph was played at Tufts and then he was a uh, head coach at Tufts for 20 years. So you've got a guy that was, you know, very impactful in, in NESCAC and division three hockey for, for 20 years. You've got Brendan who's uh, played prep school hockey and then he played college hockey at Con college. You have, you know, myself and we've got guys in the Midwest that, you know, played various levels of pro. We've got guys in Canada that have been GMs of OHL teams or different, you know, tier one, tier two junior teams. We've got guys that are ex-college coaches at work. And um, we try to honestly go into rinks and and watch different levels. Um, you know, we're not just trying to find the studs. That's, that's actually really easy to go into a rink and say, oh, this kid's the best. I mean, if you can't pick that up, there's something wrong with you really and truly. That's pretty easy to pick out. We're trying to go in and, and get a feel for everybody. You know, I'm going to say everybody in the game, which is unrealistic that you're going to be able to get get to know everybody in the game. But 
you know, there's always five kids on one team and five kids on another team that kind of uh, differentiate, differentiate themselves from their peers or distinguish themselves. And you watch what they bring. It could be a kid who's doing all the gutsy stuff and blocking shots and forechecking hard as an F1 and finishing his checks and driving the net and creating space that way. And, you know, we try to notice that stuff. And, um, you know, offensive D-men, defensive defensemen, you know, little things the goalies do from – you know, are they aware to get whistles? Do they leave the puck in the right spot so the defenseman can wheel a net on their forehand? All that, all that kind of stuff. And I think what we've done uh, from a scouting point is that we have guys that you know, because we're not always just trying to locate the, the you know the studs or the five star guys. You know, we're, we've got guys that have coached and and been involved at different levels of junior, and we can we can give an honest assessment and differentiate guys that are, you know from division one to two, three, or, you know, different levels of junior, where they're going to go. We're not, um, you know, families, we're, we're not trying to, to, to BS anybody. We're really just trying to give an honest assessment of where, where they're going to fall in the recruiting marketplace for colleges or where they're going to fall in the, in the junior, junior rankings or where they're going to be. Um, we, we spent a ton of time in the ranks. I, I don't really truly know if there's, Collectively, if there's anyone that spends as much time in the rinks as we do, uh, I'm fortunate enough where I'm able to get on the ice. I do the Boston Junior Eagles are a great, great youth program around here. So from U18 down to the little guys and the boys and girls, uh, I'm fortunate enough that I can be on the ice and do skills with those guys. So I get to know some of the kids when they're younger and watch them play. And as they come up, I get to get to watch and and be involved. But as, as far as neutral zone, we've, we've got guys that are all over that have, have played coached or, or been GMs at all different levels that, uh, they really try to just give an honest assessment and honest evaluation of where, where players are going to end up because there's so many options right now for, for these kids. You know, everyone's dream is they want to get to the NHL or they want to get to division one, but along that way, you know, is the USHL the spot? It's not the spot for everybody is the BCHL and, you know, different, different guys at different routes. And just, we try to give honest assessments about where, where those guys are in the marketplace of, of players and their peers so that they're, they're not caught off guard. They don't, they're not chasing a dream that maybe isn't really there. If anything, it's a service that you're doing. So keep up the good work on that. And thank it's, goodness. It's a ton of fun. Re- really and truly. It's a ton of fun. Um, you know, we've got like Murph. Murph loves being in the rink and he loves sitting in the crowd and having everybody around him and and kind of feeling the energy of what's going on. Where I'm on the opposite. I honestly, I go in the rink, I wear a hoodie, and I go and stand on the Zamboni door and I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to watch the game. You know, guys take notes. Some don't. I don't take notes. I just watch and I watch and I watch and I watch. Um, but yeah, it's it's a ton of fun. I mean, I'll, I'll talk to anybody on the way in or way out of a rink in the parking lot and all that. But when I, when I'm in the rink and standing in the corner, I'm, I'm pretty, I can come off as kind of a ding cause I don't want to talk. I just want to watch. It's just cause that's what I, that's what I'm doing. So I'll apologize now. <laughs> no, no apology. Disclaimer. It's a disclaimer. I asked him, I can be friendly. I, I, this I year gonna... I was, I was at a game this year and I had, uh, this is, I swear to God, the truth. I was way down in the corner all by myself watching just watching watching put up and all of a sudden a uh, a parent comes over and and there's no one close to me within like 30 yards on either side of me i'm literally at the other end of the ring and all of a sudden i have a parent next to me just slamming on the glass i mean literally like one foot oh. away from me slamming on the glass and starts asking me questions and i'm just like what the, are you kidding me 
I literally took my AirPods out and I looked at her and I put them in and I pulled my head up and put my face on the glass. And I could, I mean, she was looking at me like, this guy's the biggest jackass in the history of the world. And then afterwards I I had to go find her. I just, I'm sorry I did that, but I I couldn't handle you screaming and yelling and slamming your hands on the glass. And I'm just watching and there's the, you know, there's 75 feet on either side of me where you can go and you decide you're going to stand one foot from me. You know, so I know I can't, I came off as a total jackass, but it is what it is. It he, is what it guy, is. Was the putty, putty from uh, Seinfeld with the face paint standing next to yes. you? Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, I couldn't. I couldn't believe it. I understand if the rink's jammed and you have someone, that's fine. But there was, it was so much space in the arena. It was unbelievable. And slam, 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 slam. And, you know, screaming the kid's name. I was like, "What? Are you kidding me? Like, really?" Ladies, no, you had you had. I, I did apologize to her. <laughs> I was gonna no. say, Ian, I've seen your tweets in some of these rinks that, and same games I've been at. I'm, I've always wondered where is this guy. Yeah, that means I'm doing it right, in my opinion. <laughs> if I'm there and you don't know I'm there, that means I'm doing it right. If I walk in and to me, if I walk in and people know I'm there, then I'm not doing it right. If I walk in and you know. These are things like little things. Like I go in and I wear a hoodie and I wear jeans and you know sneakers and you know I've had I've had college coaches ask me you know see how this kid warms up outside with his with his teammates see how this kid treats his parents afterwards see if this kid's nice to his mother you know if I'm there and I you know I'm I'm in there to try to see what's going on to see how the team how the players interact together before the game how they act in warmups how they how they act to coaching like I'm. I don't want to watch just the puck. I'm watching everything else. I want to see, you know, if the, if the kid goes to the bench and the coach is all over him, does he roll his eyes? Does he slam his stick? Is he coachable? Is, you know, all the, all the stuff that matters is they move up, you know? So if I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'm sure that people know I'm there because I'm an idiot in the corner with a hoodie and a hat on. So I'd be shocked if you don't know it's me, <laughs> but like, you know, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm really there trying to watch as much of what's going on in the game as I possibly can. So and that's and that's the truth. How do they interact with the refs? How do they inter- interact with teammates when the periods are when the periods over? If you know the team lets up a couple goals quick, what? How do they respond? Are they you know they down? Are they have bad body language. You know all the, all that kind of stuff is. There's going to be a college coach. There's going to be a junior coach. One hundred percent. That's going to ask, hey, were you at that game? Did you see they they lost? You know, they lost seven nothing. What did the kid do in the last five minutes of the third? Did he pack it in? Did he keep competing? Was you know that's you can't. You know, I get there early and I stay late. It's just how I am. I don't, you know, I don't, I, if I'm watching a game, I'm watching the whole game. I'm not, I'm not flaking off to go through something else. You're okay. gathering intel. I love it. It's like CIA scout service. Holy smokes. That's great. That, a lot of people don't <laughs> see that. That's important though. I mean, it really oh, it is, is important. Most, the character of the individual is huge. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, truth, truthfully, the, you know, you say this to people and they think you're nuts. There's a ton of good players out there. A ton. Right. And the college coaches and junior coaches, they're not looking for reasons to like the player. They're looking for reasons to not like the player. Why, why don't they want that kid in their program? Why don't they want that kid in the, on the junior bus? Why don't they want it? He, you know, what differentiates him from his peers? Is he, is he going to be a good kid? If the, t- if the goalie lets in three softies, is he going to be a pain in the ass? Is he going to be banging the stick? Or is he going to be a good teammate to support the goalie? You know, all, all that kind of stuff. That's what differentiates the kids from, from their peers. There's a zillion good players. I mean, there's, there's too, there's too many division one players that are for division one spots right now. I mean, then division three hockey is great. And all those coaches, they want somebody that's going to be on their campus. It's going to add to their campus life. Not some little, you know, 
a-hole that's going to be a disaster and a pain in their butt for four years and having mom and dad calling why he's not in the power play. They want somebody that's going to be there and be a good citizen and be a good teammate and be, you know, do the things that matter to, to help a team win. And if, to me, if, if I get to the game, if warmups have already started and it's a, it's a, you know, two shifts into the game and I leave halfway through the third, you know, I don't get it. I don't, for me personally, I don't get a vibe of what's going on in the game, what's going on with the players. I want to see how they interact with the refs. I want to see how they change. I want to see if they get penalties, if they're, you know, if they get in the box and there's somebody that's in the penalty box or they dinks to the guy that's working in the penalty box. Like I'm trying to watch everything that's going on. And again, I said, I don't take notes because I know what I want to watch and I know who I'm watching. And, you know, it's, um, I don't know. To me, I have to, I have to be there for the whole thing. I can't just pick and choose what I want. I, if I'm going to watch the game, I'm going to be there early. I'm usually going to be there when the kids are walking out after the game because I want to watch and see how everything's going on. And that's, you know, like I said, I've had college coaches ask, how's this kid, how's this kid treated his mother? Hang out in the lobby and tell me how this kid treats his mother. And I'll call and I'll be like, kid had a phenomenal game. He had a hat trick and he came out and he was absolute dog to his mom. And then they'll be like, perfect. Thanks. You know, and they don't need, that's all they need to know. They don't need to know the kid ripped three bar down, you know, cause he's, cause he's, you know, he's not the kind of kid they want on their campus. There it so, is. That's the truth. So before we move on to our, our final thoughts and roll around the horn here, I, I got to ask you, I, I got two questions and you can feel free to answer them and uh, however you'd like. Uh, <laughs> while we're on this subject, what, what is the, uh, the top three red flags that you find immediately disqualify a kid? I know you just touched on a, at least one of them right there, but the top three things that as you're evaluating players and talent, what are those things that say, yep, nope, that is a huge red flag right there, your top three? Everybody's going to say skating. To me, to me, the number one thing I'm watching is how the kid processes the game. And if he, you know, say that I'm watching and I think, oh, that's a, you know, it's a, you know, a ridiculous play or a stupid play or whatever. But then I see it's happening over and over and there's other kids doing it. And then I'm trying to figure out is that what the coach is having them do? And that's the system that they're playing and it's just not working. Uh, is, you know, are they making the same mistakes repeatedly? Do they, you know, do they understand to work away from the puck? Do they, do they float? Do they just, are they hyper-focused on the puck? You know, so number one thing I'm watching is their brain. To me, it's the most important thing because without the brain, they can't play. There's a zillion kids that can skate. They can wheel around, but they have no idea where they're going. Uh, and then the next thing for me will be how they handle passes. Uh, I'm an absolute stickler for, um, for passes and how you handle them. Because as you move up and as you get to higher levels of the pocket, you stick and it bounces, that's time and space and it goes away. So I'll give this as an example. Uh, maybe a month ago or so, my son and I go to a, go to a Bruins game and we're, we're watching warm-up and, you know, he says, look, you know, they're all, all the guys are doing all the tricks and warm-ups. They're all bouncing the puck and doing all that kind of stuff, which is great. And he's just, he's just in awe by it. And I said, watch, just watch how they handle passes. Just watch, watch how, you know, NHL, NHL warmups and game, how they handle passes. And he watches for a couple of minutes. He says, you know, dad, the puck never bounces. I'm like, yeah, that's the difference. So then he goes to an American league game a couple weeks, a couple weeks later, and he takes a video and, you know, the pucks are bouncing a little bit more and a little bit more. And he's like, Jesus, oh, God, I never noticed this. It's the, the pucks are bouncing. And I said, yeah, that's a difference. You know, the puck bounce, you have to look down. You can't think it's, you know, it's, a, it's a brain. And then he was at the final four and he takes a video and there's pucks bombing all over the place in warmups, you know, and these are the, you know, arguably the, you know, collection of the best kids in college hockey and the pucks are bouncing off their backhands all over. 
he's got another video. He's like, this, you know, just, this is unbelievable. So second thing would be, can you handle a pass? Can you, can it hit your stick and stick to it? Does it bounce? Does it tip? Does it roll? Does it settle? Can you, can you keep it still? Can you handle a bad pass? Um, you know, handle passes on your backhand, all, all that kind of stuff. And then, uh, you know, probably can you give a pass? Can you, can you put a pass where it's supposed to be? If a guy's giving you a target, can you put it where it's supposed to be? So to me, it would be your brains. Can you handle a pass and can you give a pass? I think it's a lot of the kids now, they do a ton of individual skill work, which is great. You know, they think collectively the kids playing now are probably more skilled than any time in the history of hockey. Um, you know, but as, as they move on, they've got to be able to give and give and receive a pass. And, you know, I, I would like to, one recommendation I can get any, any parent that's out there, they're doing skills with the guy with, with their, you know, with their player, their son or daughter, if whoever they're with doesn't have them passing the puck or receiving the puck or putting the puck into space to get it or something like that. Um, just make sure you're going someplace where your your coach is incorporating passing and receiving passes. Because if you watch, you can put on the Bruins tonight. The puck's at those guys stick, and it sticks to it. You know, I've told I've told people this that so you get to training camp. At least when I was playing, one of the first drills you did was a high low stretch pass drill. And you were a veteran. You just watch pucks and if they hit a kid's stick on the backhand and it bounced. I mean, a kid hit a stick on his forehand and bounced. You knew he was going to be done by the end of the day. He'd be gone. But, you know, a puck on his backhand and a bounce, you knew he'd have a couple of days and you just wait until you got inter squad games. You'd force him to his backhand because you knew the puck was going to bobble and you just take away his time and space. And that kid now is no longer competing for your job. So um, to me, it would be your brain handling passes and can you give a good pass? So. Wow. No, thank you for elaborating. Pretty basic. Pretty, pretty, basic, pretty basic stuff. I mean, people probably think, you know, and you put the shot exactly where you want it and all that. But if you can't do the others, if you don't have a brain, you can't do anything. You're, you're, you're going to end up being useless. You're just going to be the kid that wheels around and, and does accomplishes nothing. But you have to be able to give and handle a pass 100%. Otherwise, you're done. Take that note, kids. No brain, no hockey skill. Very important. Very important. <laughs> all right. Absolutely. I mean, it's the little things that make a huge difference in kids' games. You know, like guys, kids are always like, oh, I, I can't do this. I'm like, well, if you can't, you're in high school. If you can't catch a backhand pass, then you yeah. are not taught the game the right way. Hence why yeah. you're on my JV team. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And they, but they don't care about that. They don't realize how important the little things are. You know, there's a kid that I've coached for a while and he's, he's a division one kid and he's, he's a heck of a player. You know, the, the father said to me a couple of weeks ago, why aren't the NHL teams watching them? You know, I said, you know, a couple of things and he said, no, really, why aren't they? And I said, well, to tell you the truth, he can't handle the pass in his backhand. He's like, what? So yeah, you watch how many times he just curls through the middle as a center. He's going on the wide side and his back in the pocket's a stick and it scoots off three or four feet. At next level, that, that's gone. I mean, you, you can't have a pocket your back in and scoot off your stick two feet. The, the, the defensemen are too good. There's not enough space. You just got to hit your stick and stick. Otherwise, you're, you're dead in the water. You've got to be able to pick, pick, pick pucks off your feet, right to your stick blade cleanly, all that, all that kind of stuff. There can't, there can't be any bobble. There can't be any bounce. You want, you want to play? You can toe drag it all you want and do all the other foolish stuff, but if you can't handle a pass and give a pass, you're done. Your, your days, your days are numbered as a player. No, absolutely. And you, you know, you watch players nowadays like like McDavid and Crosby, the way they handle the puck in tight areas off their skate. I mean, you've seen Crosby's yeah. blade. It, it's like a sheet of paper that's six inches long. But I don't think there's yep. anyone in the league that can handle a pass on his backhand or even make a backhand pass or shoot the way he does off his backhand. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. 
And I mean, Gretzky was like that. And, you know, Paul Correa, great backhand. All, all the great players have, are able to use their backhand. Um, I think everybody in the NHL, if you if you put a pass anywhere within, you know, their, their stick circumference, their radius, they're going to be able to handle it and make a play with it. Um, you know, or they'll be able to handle it and, and keep it out of trouble. But you get, you know, Crosby, you know, with his ability to settle and make make plays on his backhand, that's one of huge one of his huge differentiators from from everybody else because he is he's a real threat on his backhand. No, a- absolutely, absolutely. What we we lose Ben. Let's trying keep... to figure out if he can handle passes on his backhand. Yeah, that's yeah. It, man. I, I, had to, I had to go check right now to make sure, and I'm happy to report my NHL career is as about as short as it's going to get. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, guys, let's move into our, our final thoughts here as we continue to rock and roll with Ian Moran here on Causeway Kings. This has been great, Ian, and thank you so much for joining us today. My final, Thanks for having me. It's been have, fun. Oh, totally. Uh, my, my final thought and or question for you has got to be uh, an odd one. During that 0405 lockout, you went across the pond and you played in jolly yep. old. You got to tell me about the yeah. Nottingham Panthers, please. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to initially went to Carl Skoga and played in the Alsvenska. It's uh, the, there's the SHL in Sweden and the Alsvenska. I was in the Alsvenska North and I was there for about two months. Um, and then that kind of came to an end and went to uh, Nottingham with uh, Nick Boynton and Steve McKenna. And uh, it was phenomenal. We had a blast. We had a great time. It was uh, the team only had four defensemen, including me and Nick Point. So I'm not sure what the team did before we got there uh, for defense, but we had a, we had a blast. It was uh, it was a great it was it was a great time. The uh, the arena in Nottingham was was great. I think it probably held about seven thousand people, and it got big crowds. And Sheffield was was you know. 45 minutes, I don't even know if it was north or south, but it was 45 minutes away. And, you know, big, huge rivalries. The games were tough, hard-nosed games. There was, there was a lot of – there was actually a lot of fights. It was um, it was a ton of fun. We had, we had a great time. It was, uh, it was it was a really good group of guys, and it was uh, – you know, it was it – was, we, had, we had a blast. There was a bowling alley attached to the rink. We went and bowled every day. We had uh, we had these little smart cars with the cars they gave us to drive around, and Steve McKenna was six foot eight, so you had McKenna driving around the smart car, which is absolutely hysterical. So, but it was it was it was a great experience. That that league is is a really good league. At that point, I'm not sure what's going on, but Basting Stoke had a, had a deal that if you were a North American, you went over the, at the university. It was in Basting Stoke. They they uh, they took care of you, so you were able to get an MBA. Which which was a great setup for the kids that were in Basting Stoke. It was it was it was a really good league to play in. The crowd was, the crowds were good. It was good hockey. Travel was travel was easy. Coaching was good. You got treated well. It was we had, we had a ton of fun. I had a ton of fun everywhere. I mean, I'm like you know your worst day in to me your worst day in hockey is better than your best day doing anything else. So I I had I loved going to the rink. I still love going to the rink. Like it's by far the the best. Like I I thoroughly enjoy being at the rink. Even even when I've got some lady banging on the glass next to me, making my head explode, <laughs> it's way 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 better than anything else I could be doing. So I, I just I think I'm really fortunate right now that I'm able to go to the rink and be in the rink as much as as much as I am because I had I had a time there when I wasn't going to the rink and I wasn't particularly happy. So I'm I'm pretty lucky now. True that. True that. 
Clance, uh, if you'd like uh, to lead things off with the final thoughts of a segment of our show. No, Ian, this has been absolutely amazing, and you are just an absolute encyclopedia full of hockey knowledge that is just you know, extremely useful to, to hear and you know to be able to relay that now as myself as a coach is absolutely amazing. Um, but I, you know, before we go, I, I do have to. Ask, I was told to ask about a baby blue jumpsuit. Mr. John Lounsbury asked me to bring that up. Yeah. So I, yeah. I did find a picture of it on Google, believe it or not. And that, oh, that, yeah. is, some, that is some baby blue. What's the story behind so, that? So like I said, when I first retired, I, I didn't stay in hockey. I got out of skills. I got every, out of everything. So I wasn't in a rank for about five years. And uh, I decided I was going to go back and start doing skills. And I had the option of either getting a black tracksuit that everybody else wears or a baby blue one. And there was one baby blue one. So I, I got the baby blue. Uh, I figured if people didn't know who I was or know my name, they would know the tracksuit. So I wore I wore that I wore that baby blue tracksuit from uh, I, I literally just stopped wearing it this this past winter because it is so gross and dirty and disgusting that you can't imagine. I sat on a red Sharpie and it's right in the middle of my butt. So it looks like I had some serious bleeding issues going on uh and it's it's gross i wore it i wore it constantly so i wore it i was in that tracksuit a lot for a good 10 11 years and i honestly i just stopped wearing it this winter where it got so gross that i actually felt like it just it was just disgusting so i i just it's in my i've got it in the basement right now if anything my daughter gets married my one of my daughters gets married i'll wear that to the wedding just bring it out She'd probably love it. Oh, so, you, that's the you, best. It is gross. I mean, the red the red marker on my butt is perfectly placed. It's like I couldn't have sat any better. So it was uh it's a pretty, pretty disgusting thing though. That's but that's awesome. Baby blue. Yeah. <laughs> love it. But no, I, I can't thank you enough, Ian. This has been absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, we you know, obviously we could questions for days about your career and certain players and and we'd love to have you on again to maybe give us some good um you know locker room stories or anything like that and you you may have to fill us in on what it was like having billy tibbets oh, on your roster Jesus. i actually got along really well with billy that was uh oh. <laughs> honestly that was the team in pittsburgh that we had him was a good collection for billy to be with because there's a lot of veterans billy billy played his ass off when he was in pittsburgh with us Oh, he really, could truly. play, man. I, uh, he, oh, he, he was Billy could play. Billy could play. Billy was tough as nails. He, he Billy could play. He really could. He was uh, when I when I was with him in Pittsburgh. I'm not I'm not going to bullshit it. Like I I enjoyed him on the team. He played he played his ass off and he wanted to win. So I mean, there's whatever else you can say it, but he was uh, at that point he was he was he played his ass off for us without a doubt. That's awesome. So, I love it. I love it. B, BJ, your final thoughts. Uh, bring out the tracksuit. Just remember, they used to call those things the Southie tuxedos back in the day, back in the eighties. Oh yeah, this is. Everybody wore. You can't find it anymore. Yeah, you yeah. can't find a baby blue tracksuit. I've had people send me pictures and order it here and order it there, and I try to order one, and they just they're, they're not around. I got uh, it was Holloway. Holloway was the name of the company that made it. It was baby blue, and it is awesome. I mean, it was it is thing of absolute beauty and uh it, it, you can't find them anymore you go to holloway you go to all the any place they just they don't have it and then 
Gordo sent me a couple of links where you can, it says you can order them. And then I order, I try to order them and they say out of, <laughs> out of, out of stock or whatever you would, you would think with North Carolina, the baby blue tracksuits or hoodies or whatever would, would be fairly common, but you, you just, you can't, you can't get it. <laughs> Believe me, I've tried. <laughs> it's just that it's that color that not many people want, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know why. I mean, it's still, it's still <laughs> horrific. <laughs> I, I, I like to call it baby. If you got a nice can, it looks good. You know, it's not too bad. Yeah, my problem is I'm in the ring so much that I'm, you know, ass white. So it's not a, not a good combo. <laughs> Love it. A lot of, a lot of bright Love colors it. going on. I understand. Yeah, it's pretty pretty pale. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Well, thank you again, Ian, for doing this tonight. It was great. Yes. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. It was fun. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Meryl, your final thoughts, and then we're almost done here. Well, I just want to say, again, Ian is just an encyclopedia and, and just a goldmine of knowledge for, for anybody who, uh, you know, has, has a youngster who wants to, you know, excel and improve in hockey. And, um, you know, a lot of the little things that I think people take for granted, but but definitely go into, you know, the 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 molding and everything that goes into a player and uh, you know, I just want to thank you for being on here, Ian. It, it was uh, it was great, and um, just um, you know, final thoughts is just on your end as far as um, if you were to give boil it down to if you were advising a young player, um, you, you know, nine ten years old, what would you what would you want them to know? Is a word of advice or a tip or anything like that? Uh, anyone that's young like that, and I'm being 100% honest, I hope that you get a coach like I was lucky enough to have with Spike when I first started playing that made me love going to the rink every day. He was just, he was a kid. He wasn't worried about systems, wasn't worried about teaching anything. He just, you know, he was 15, 16 years old and he, he made our crew of kids that we all wanted to go to the rink. And I was, I was really lucky that, you know, somebody like that. So hopefully all of you your younger guys or younger kids, younger players, whatever that you, you get a coach that keeps it fun and makes you want to go to the rink and, and can figure out ways to teach you, you know, how to play, but do it in a way that it's fun that you, you love being there. Cause there's, you know, if you're not having fun, there's no point in doing it. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Thank well, you. Ian just wanted to say thanks again for joining us on the podcast tonight. Uh, since everyone's already asked their uh, parting questions, high school season's over, prep school season's over. Why don't we turn to the NHL playoffs? Do you give the Bruins any shot this year? Truthfully, no. Uh, I think they could win around. I, I'm, I think it's honestly, I think Florida, Tampa, and, and, uh, and Colorado, from the games that I've seen, they're consistently a step up a step above everybody else um in florida i don't know how often you get to see florida play but man they're good and they play with pace and they've got jam and they're tough and they're they seem to be falling into the same window of you know they lost last year after having a successful year um i think they've got some attitude and i mean that in a good way uh and then the same thing with colorado out west how they were rolling last year to get knocked out i, I would love I have no idea what it would do for ratings, but for people that like, uh, you know, like watching good, hard hockey with skill, I think Colorado, Florida would be unbelievable. I mean, Tampa too, but I just, I think, I think Florida, Florida could be it this year. I think Tampa's played a lot of hockey too. I mean, I, the miles they've they, done the last couple of years is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And the body and the names they've lost, the players they've lost and how they contribute. And, um, you know, 
I don't know. I just, just from watching and seeing, and I watched, I don't know, I, watched, I was able to watch Florida play this weekend and Barkov, Barkov just gets better and better and better, you know, and they've got the younger guys can play. Lundell is unbelievable. I mean, he's, he's absolutely ridiculous. So um, those would, those would be my Colorado and Florida probably wouldn't help ratings at all, but it would, I think it would be from a pure hockey standpoint, I think it would be unbelievable. I think it would be great. That's two sick. teams that, yeah, it'd be awesome. Just awesome. Agreed. Bring back the rat. Yeah, I'd love to see it. That'd be great. <laughs> it's all about the rat. Oh, man. All about the rat. That was – hey, hey, Ian, can I ask you one more question? I'm sorry I'm going to sneak this one in. Yeah. Like, what were your you thoughts are. on the whole rat thing? That Like, that must have pissed you guys off as far as just, like, the team – you know, you give up a goal and then there's like 10 minutes to clean the freaking ice off. Thousand rats. So I, I don't know. I, I kind of view it as it's entertainment. So, um, I, I think there's guys that are playing in the NHL that, that understand that it's entertainment and they get it. And then there's other guys that would look at something like that with the rat and get pissed off and it could bring them off their game. Um, I don't, you know, being, being honest, I don't, uh, I think one of the things that makes guys that, or any, anything they're doing, any, you know, if you're very good at it, you know, you know, the, the best, the best, or you want to phrase it, whether it be sport, actor, or musician, whatever, I think they have, I think all of them have an unbelievable ability to focus on things that they can control and not getting caught up in the, in the little things that they can't, because otherwise the seasons are so long as a player, if you get, if you start worrying about stuff that you can't control, you're, you're, you're done because you just, you're just out of your wheelhouse and wasting energy on things that, that really don't matter. Um, but that, that series against Florida, as soon as Ronnie Francis broke his ankle, I mean, it's his, what he meant to that team leadership wise, you know, even though Mario was the captain, what, what Ronnie meant leadership wise to that group of guys was, uh, was, you know, basically immeasurable really and truly. And any final thoughts for yourself? Anything that we haven't asked you that uh, you'd like people to know? And, and where can people find you on social media and reach out to you if they have any questions? Uh, social media, uh, everything is I am hockey skills. So Ian Moran, I am hockey skills. And that's on Twitter uh, with me. And then neutral zone is um, same thing on Twitter. It's just neutral zone. We have a, we have a prep handle. And we have a, a uh, girls site we have uh, nhl site so neutral zone itself covers kids and they say this u14 to college free agents and everyone say u14 is so young but with the way the academies are around here they need to know the kids and really and truly the kids that are u14 are are a year out from their uh from their first national team so it's really not that young you know i mean the 06 is just just had their 40 man camp and kids got selected for the national team and the 07s are, are a year out. It's not, they're not that young. I know it sounds crazy when you say U14, but in the whole grand scheme of things of how it works, national team starts when they're, when they're 16. So U14 isn't, isn't that far away. And, you know, USHL draft is the 06s this year. The OHL draft and Quebec league draft is 06s. The Western league was 07s. So it's, you know, you, you, people will say, you know, what are you, what are you scouting these kids for? Why are you watching them? And 
you know, for us, I mean, we, we start with neutral zone. We start watching kids in their U14 year. We, we track them all the way through. And it's, you know, for some people, it's fascinating, you know, to see we've got, you know, I think we've got 26 NHL teams that subscribe most of division ones, pretty much all the division twos and threes, because they don't have the resources. We've got major junior USHL, all of them. It's, it's, uh, if you're trying to see a kid's path and his, you know, his trajectory, if he was a stud and, you know, it could have been a stud that hit puberty early. He was just bigger and stronger. It could have been a kid who struggled when he was little because he was, he was five, two and a hundred, you know, not even five, two and 65 pounds playing against other kids, but he was just super start smart and learned how to use his body. I mean, that's, that's all the information that we have. And we've got like this year's draft class. So we, we should have for this 04s, we should, we'll have notes on these kids on the majority of maybe not all the euros, but on the majority of the ones in North America from the time that they were 14 playing in different tournaments and national camps and all that kind of stuff. So it's pretty, if you're a, if you're a diehard junkie, it's, um, I mean, it's really, there's not, there's not a better place to get the information because it's honestly, you've got guys that coached or GM'd or played at those levels. So it's pretty, to me, it's a ton of fun and it's a, a ton of information. And I'm fortunate enough, I watch a ton of games, a ton of games. It's the best. Well, that's awesome. You, <laughs> you got our three favorite flavors hockey, hockey, and hockey. How could you go wrong? Yep, exactly. Yeah, it's great. Ian, thank you so much for joining us here on Causeway Kings. This has been an absolute uh, a gem of an episode. I really appreciate your time. And, uh, well, considering we're recording this, it's now 1022 at night, Eastern time. I really want to thank you, you on a Tuesday night. <laughs> thank you. As always, folks, thank you very much for tuning in to Causeway Kings. You can find this on WMEXBoston.com as well as all major streaming platforms. You can't go wrong. Spotify, Apple, you name it, we got it. As always, boys, let's go bees.